for listening to a little more conversation on this Monday night. I'm Ben O'Hara-Byrne. Tonight we meet a Canadian soprano who took center stage as the Phantom of the Opera wound up a record 35-year run on Broadway in New York Sunday night. Calgary's Raquel Suarez-Bruin took on the role of prima donna Carlotta. Five years ago, she performed the role more than 1,200 times. We take a peek behind the curtain to find out what it was like to be part of the cast and part of theater history. You might not think of lighting when you think about things that could impact your overall mood, but it turns out it can have a big effect on our well-being. We shed some light on common mistakes and how to fix them. We look into why rapid advances in artificial intelligence have some on the inside now warning about the potential threat to national security and why policymakers are struggling to keep up. But first, the NHL playoffs begin tonight. It's that time of the year. And once again, hope springs eternal that a Canadian team, there are three in the playoffs this year, can end this country's 30-year Stanley Cup drought. Could this be our year? Could this be our year? We get some expert insight. Usually one of the most exciting nights in Canadian sport because the NHL playoffs have begun. Of course, that's going to impact um, our chorus family as well. 6.30 Ched, 6.80 CJOB in Winnipeg are airing the games. In fact, the Kings and the Oilers is about to start now. There are three Canadian teams vying for Lord Stanley's Cup this year. Of course, Edmonton, Winnipeg, and obviously Toronto as well. And it got me thinking, you know, it has been 30 years. It'll be 30 years in June, June 9th to be exact, since a Canadian team last won a Stanley Cup. That seems absolutely remarkable. And I'll tell you why, because I remember watching that series. I was at McGill at the time in Montreal. We had this awful old TV that just barely, we didn't have cable, couldn't afford it, that could just barely pick up the channels that we needed to watch. So we ended up watching, I think, half of it in English, half of it in French, regardless. Whatever, whatever, whatever came in best that night was what we would watch that evening. And the Canadians went on this sort of miracle run to a very unexpected cup. Although they had a decent team, no one really expected they would win that year. And I remember that you're thinking, wow, that's great. You know, we had won in 86 and then the Flames had won in 89. There were, the Oilers were still in the middle of quite the dynasty or it had just ended. You know, there were a lot of, there was a lot of hope for Canadian hockey there. And all of a sudden, here we are 30 years later, still no cup. So, of course, Toronto hosts Tampa tomorrow night. The Jets travel to Vegas. Edmonton hosts the Kings. That's a long history there. That starts uh, starting as we speak. Um, and again, since on June 9th, 30 years, 30 years since a Canadian team last won the Cup. In fact, it was Wayne Gretzky and those LA Kings who the Canadians defeated at the Montreal Forum in Game 5 to win Cup number 24. of the famous forum in Montreal. The Canadians win the Stanley Cup. Oh yeah, here comes the, here comes the song. I, that, that annoyed enough people over the years, right? But to imagine the forum's long gone, right? It's it's been so long. Now there have been some very close calls. The Canucks heartbreak heartbreak of it all. They lost to lost in seven 
to the Bruins in 2011. I remember watching that in Beijing. And of course, they lost to the Rangers in 94. The Flames lost a seven in seven to Tampa in 2004. The Oilers lost to Carolina in 2005. Both the Senators and the Canadians made finals, but didn't come close. Still, I mean, prior to this year, prior to this drought, the longest drought Canada had ever had was six years. That was really during, you know, 1936 to 1942. I mean, that was a strange time. So hope springs eternal. Here we are again in the middle of the the beginning of the NHL playoffs. And there is, you know, just 16 games between one team, 16 wins between one team and a cup. And could it be a Canadian team this year at long last? Jonathan Willis is a hockey writer with The Athletic. Jonathan, thank you. Very much my pleasure, Ben. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I don't know if you were you were around for that 93 Cup. A lot of people weren't. It's amazing how many people you run into now. They're like, I don't know what you're talking about. Well, it's, it's, it's funny, actually. I was, I was really glad you led with it because it's the very first hockey-watching memory I have. My, uh, my parents watched the... I, I was seven years old watching the... Um, we were watching the LA Kings, actually. LA versus Toronto and then LA versus Montreal. And my, my dad was pulling for the Canadian clubs and my mom was pulling for Wayne Gretzky. So, Oh, wow. <laughs> was, yeah, of course. It, <laughs> yeah, so, so there, it, was, it was one and one. And uh, uh, fortunately, uh, Montreal won, won the Cup and uh, it, was a, it was a fantastic series. Um, but uh, it, there, there haven't been many of those in the last 30 years since. No, and I remember, of course, when I when I was living in Toronto, you didn't bring up that cup because Toronto felt like they'd been robbed, <laughs> right? They'd been robbed in the semifinals and that they really should have been there against Montreal. And truth be told, they actually had a better team that year. So who knows what would have happened. But uh, yeah, Th- then again, when you look at sort of sporting history in the period in that was 30 years since, I mean, uh, the Jays won a World Series later that year, their second, and then the Raptors have won an NBA championship. Uh, Toronto FC have won an, won a, uh, won an MLS championship. Championship. You know, there's been some championships in this country, but not a Stanley Cup. And it's been, it's hard to figure out. I mean, for a while there at the beginning of the 90s or through the 90s, it was a sort of a, a dollar thing, an economics thing, but it's been too long now to have any one reason anymore. What, what do you think? Yeah, I, I think it's a, uh, a problem that defines a, a single, or defies, pardon me, a single answer. And, and you, you, you mentioned in the intro there, that a lot of teams have come close. Calgary, very close. Edmonton, very close. Vancouver, very close in those three years. Um, five Canadian teams going to the final, just on the law of averages, you would think at least one of them would have won a Stanley Cup in that span of time. So it's it's not that it was entirely out of reach, but I, I think if you look at the economic landscape of the league prior to the, the collective bargaining agreement and the salary cap being instituted in 2005, it was very difficult for a Canadian team to compete as the Canadian dollar tanked there in the, uh, the, the especially in the late 90s and, and teams like Edmonton and Calgary, these smaller market teams couldn't really compete. It was only Toronto that seemed to have the budget to, uh, to go the distance. But, but since the cap era, everybody's been on a more or less even playing field. And it's, it's hard to look at anything other than managerial decisions and, and difficulties over that span to, uh, to, to blame for this, this long drought. Yeah, and I guess in all fairness, if one is a big Quebec Nordiques fan, one could say that they won the cup not long after leaving <laughs> Quebec City, right? I mean, they were in Colorado. They were lifting a cup before the paint was even dry in Denver. Indeed, with a, with a team that had been built at uh, at great great patience and great cost for uh, Nordiques fans who, who had to sit through a lot of losing and some first overall picks, only yeah. to see the, the team move before the, the final payoff. 
and a certain gift from the Montreal Canadiens to top it all off. Well, <laughs> yes, yes. Patrick Roy. So looking at this year, I mean, the Oilers are on a real roll. The Leafs had a really good season. The Jets look good. I mean, there are only three teams in, which is never great for the odds. But And, and two of them could very well meet in the next round, uh, the, the, the Jets and the Oilers. But there is some reason for optimism this year. Oh, certainly there is. Certainly there is. Um, the well, when when I look at this, when you look at the regular season performance benchmarks, one of the the key things for me is is regulation wins because of course overtime and shootout rules are very different in the regular season than in the postseason. So winning in regulation, that's the game condition that's closest to the playoffs. And if you look at regulation wins, three teams in the NHL topped forty. Boston had fifty four. They ran away with the field. But the other two teams are Edmonton and Toronto. Edmonton had 45, Toronto had 42. So in terms of playoff-style hockey, Edmonton and Toronto were the most successful non-Boston teams in the league this year. And I think everyone looks at the, the incredible season Boston has and goes, well, they're, they're the favorites. And, and, and I think that's fair, and that's what I would certainly say. But they're just one team. And if you can get past the Bruins, Edmonton and Toronto have as good a claim as anybody to the title of the, the next best option. Yeah, and teams that do really well during the regular season. I was reading today, I think that it's been a decade since the team that finished first overall during the regular season actually won the Cup. Yeah, if you look historically, the um, the President's Trophy winner wins the Stanley Cup about one time in four, which is, is better than the second or third or fourth ranked team. But, but I mean, winning the President's Trophy, it, it is not a, any kind of guarantee. I, I don't think any of us would, uh, would take one in four odds if there was something very, very serious on the line. So as, as good as Boston has been, it's not like this is even remotely close to being sewed up. Yeah, I mean, the Bruins won their opener tonight. Uh, and I think a lot, I mean, certainly the, the bookies seem to think that uh, the Bruins are, are shoe-ins for this. Well, not shoe-ins, but certainly heavily favorites. But the other teams they have up there are, in fact, you know, Toronto, uh, as, well as, as, well as, uh, as well as the Oilers. I mean, there is, uh, there is expectations. And, of course, the Rangers, too. There's, it feels quite even this year, even though you look at that one incredible season the Bruins have had. Oh, ab- absolutely. And, and that's always the way of it. There's, there's always seven or eight teams that come into the playoffs with the possibility of winning. Ever since the salary cap came in, we live in this era of parity where it's very difficult for one team to separate themselves from the pack. Um, Boston has certainly done that, that to some extent this year, but there are six or seven teams nipping at their heels, and, and Edmonton and Toronto in particular are very much right in that group. Yeah, they used to play that song where the Canadians won the cup back in the 70s when they won those four in a row in the late 70s. I got quite used to that. I, they won so often I had to cheer for another team. I wound up being a Minnesota North Stars fan as a kid just to be different. But there you go. <laughs> I, I have Jonathan Willis with us, the hockey writer with The Athletic. We're talking about the Stanley Cup playoffs, which begin tonight. Uh, only one Canadian team playing tonight. That's Edmonton. They're hosting L.A. I gather it's underway. It should be. It was supposed to start at 7 o'clock for all our listeners on 630 Ched in Edmonton, the home of the Oilers there. Um, Jonathan, when you look at some of the different matchups in the first round, it feels like... It could be. T- I mean, we may not have three Canadian teams when this is said and done. <laughs> yes, I would say the odds are certainly against all three of them surviving the first round. Yeah, what, what um, do you think? I mean, it feels like Toronto. It feels like Toronto is going to break the curse this year. It really does. And I'm a Montrealer, so my relationship with the Leafs is a big. It's touch and go, but uh, it really feels like this year they have a good enough team to, to make it to the second round for the first time in what uh, 19 years. <laughs> Yeah, well, if you look at that Toronto-Tampa Bay matchup and you look at any of the regular season metrics, Toronto comes out ahead. Toronto had a very impressive regular season, but the, the caveat there is always that Tampa Bay 
they they are a playoff team. They've accomplished everything they've ever needed to accomplish in the regular season. And there's a question as to how much you can judge based on the regular season results. And the other thing that a, a Toronto skeptic will point out is that the goaltending matchup is Andre Vasilevsky versus Ilya Samsonov. And everybody would choose Andre Vasilevsky given the choice there. So Tampa Bay certainly has the ability to win that series. But I, I think you look at all the progress Toronto has made this year. They're a deeper, better team than they've been in years past. You have to have them as the favorites going in. It's just it might, might be a little bit closer than it, than it looks at first blush. And, and, and the Kings could be a tough opponent for the Oilers, too. Although, I mean, the Oilers are on, on a streak. They're coming in hot, which is great. Um, but, but the Kings play them tough. They do, and and the, they took seven. Like the first, this first round series last year pushed the Oilers right to the brink. The Kings did not have Drew Doughty this year. They do, um, as much as the the last two regular season contests between Edmonton and LA were were played very well by the Oilers and dominated. Um, they were still close outcomes. Um, the other thing is you look at Los Angeles and. They're a team that really made some strides at the deadline, bringing in uh, Eunice Corpusalo. Um, mm-hmm. No Oilers fan needs to know what a difference having a new starting goalie can have at the trade deadline. Their, their 2006 run was fueled in large part by the addition of Dwayne Rolison. And, right. and L.A. had been getting substandard net mining, so they should be a stronger team. I don't think they're as strong as Edmonton. I have Edmonton as a fairly heavy favorite, but, but even a fairly heavy favorite maybe wins only two times out of three. So the, the Kings will certainly play them tough. And the Golden Knights are always a bit of an enigmatic team, and so are the Jets, for that matter. I mean, I always like the Jets, so it's uh, it would be it would be nice to see them surprise. But uh, that that one feels like it could go either way. Yeah, I, I think most people have the the Golden Knights as as favored to win. But we we just talked about the goaltending in Toronto, Tampa Bay, and I mean, if you have the choice between Connor Hellebuck and whichever of the five Vegas goalies ends up starting, yeah, it looks like it'll yeah, it looks like it'll be Laurent Brassois, but. Uh, um, they, Winnipeg certainly has the edge in net there, and, and Hellebuck is um, one of the best goaltenders of his generation. He's uh, he, he could certainly be the equalizer for Winnipeg. There is. It feels like there's a lot at stake this year, though, for Edmonton and Toronto. That this is sort of the make-or-break year. I know that's that we always say that, and it's always a bit over the top. But it feels like this is the year that both those teams need to perform in the playoffs in a way that they haven't done in the past. I'd say especially Toronto. Um, Toronto managed to bring back just about everything after being ousted in the first round yet again last year. I don't think that'll be an option this season. Certainly they'll be making a change at the the top end, probably manager, coach, and significant player personnel moves if they're out in the first round once more. Um, The Oilers, there's that that ticking clock. When you have Connor McDavid and Leon Dreisaitl, you have pressure, and and that's a good thing. Um, Having made it to the third round last year, I think, there's a little less of a, a feeling that they can't compete in the playoffs the way that there might be in Toronto. Um, but, but having said that, at some point you have to win with those guys, and if they were to exit early, that would be a, a major, major disappointment after how well they played down the stretch. So uh, Jonathan's predictions for the final, and what would the NHL like to see in the final? <laughs> I, I actually I think it'll be Boston and Edmonton. I, um, wow, yeah, that's, I, that seems to be a favorite. Yeah, I, there's... Boston is simply too good for me to put Toronto ahead of them. And when you look at the West, to me, it comes down to Edmonton, Colorado, and, and Dallas. And, and Edmonton probably has the easier path and um, is the best of those three teams, especially in the last while. Uh, I, I think I'd have trouble picking against Boston. I mean, strange things happen in the playoffs all the time, but they've been so good this year. I, I can't, in, in good conscience, pick against them. Um, 
that's what the, what the league would like to see. The, I'm sure the league would love to see the Bruins. The league would love to see the New York Rangers. Anytime you can get a, a big-budget American team in there, if they, if they had a Boston-LA final, they would be tickled pink with that, I think. God. Yeah. Well, ho- yeah, hopefully that doesn't happen. But uh, yeah, uh, hopefully, Jonathan, not. <laughs> hopefully that doesn't happen. Uh, but thanks so much for your time tonight. We'll be watching. I mean, we, we start tonight. I shouldn't have said the Bruins won their game. They're up 4-1. They're going to win their game. But uh, they were still playing Florida last I looked in game one. Thanks so much for your time tonight. Very much my pleasure. Take care, Ben. Well, the Delaware judge presiding over Dominion's $1.6 billion defamation lawsuit against Fox News announced today that the trial has been delayed until tomorrow morning, and there was no reason given for the delay. Opening statements had been expected to begin today. This is a historic trial over Fox's broadcasting of falsehoods, alleging the voting machine company was involved in a non-existent scheme to rig the 2020 U.S. election. Judge Eric Davis came onto the bench only briefly to say he made the decision to delay the start of the trial to Tuesday. He gave no reason, saying only in a six-week trial this kind of delay is not unusual. There are signs, though, Fox News and Dominion may be trying to resolve the case. The Wall Street Journal, which is owned by Fox boss Rupert Murdoch, reported Fox News has made a late push to settle. Dominion seeking $1.6 billion. Fox News has called the amount deeply flawed. If there's no settlement, jury selection will finish Tuesday before opening statements. Aaron Katursky, ABC News, Wilmington, Delaware. And there's a lot of anticipation about this one for many, many reasons. There are many facets to this story. The lawsuit itself centers on the election-related falsehoods spread by Fox News stars and guests in the wake of the 2020 election. You'll remember that, the big lie, quote-unquote. Um, and it is one of the most high-profile defamation cases in recent history. Uh, former President Trump, he's not involved in this case, by the way, and his allies said Dominion had contributed to election fraud. You may remember all those clips from just after the election. I mean, it was, yeah... Uh, and that the, the accusation here is that Fox News amplified those uh, claims, that the talent did at least, uh, which Dominion argues Fox knew were false at the time, amounting, of course, to defamation. And that's not easy to prove, by the way. Fox says that its broadcasts were protected by the First Amendment. Joining me now is Ronell Anderson-Jones. She's the Lee E. Teitelbaum Professor of Law at the College of Law at the University of Utah and an affiliated fellow with the Yale Law School Information Society Project. Ronell, thank you so much. Sure. Happy to be here. So I guess, I mean, I've, I've, you've been giving a lot of interviews. I know everyone's been sort of anticipating it was supposed to be sort of Christmas Eve last night, and then all of a sudden it wasn't, now it's tonight. Do we know what happened? Well, uh, we can speculate what happened. Uh, it might be that uh, the, either the judge nudged the parties to give another go at settlement talks, or one of the parties, most likely Fox, came to the table uh, to push for more settlement talks and um, talked to the judge into a little bit of time to do that. Uh, it could, it could of course, be something else, but the likelihood, given the kind of reporting that's happening in the U.S. about it uh, and the stakes that are uh, on the line, uh, the likelihood is that um, the parties spent today trying to iron out a settlement agreement. It doesn't appear that they've reached one. Right. I mean, because at $1.6 billion, that's a, it's a massive defamation suit. And, if, and this is just a neophyte myself looking at what evidence is out there. And, and you've pointed out that it's, this is not an easy case to prove necessarily. But it seems quite, you know, this seems like the kind of uh, case where Fox might want to look to settle. That's right. It's a fairly powerful case against Fox, uh, even given the very high constitutional bar that the First Amendment presents. Uh, Dominion has to show not just that Fox was sloppy or that it was biased, uh, 
uh, or that it was inaccurate. It has to show a state of mind. It has to show knowing falsity that uh, Fox uh, either knew that this was false or had a high degree of awareness that it probably was false and moved ahead uh, with it anyway. Uh, but Dominion has gathered a body of evidence that it says uh, suggests that, uh, that it thinks that it can prove to a jury that key Fox players knew that this wasn't true and moved ahead with a conscious corporate decision to tell a lie about it. And because the evidence is so powerful, um, we suspect that um, folks at Fox are probably working hard to try to arrange a settlement to avoid the uh, sort of long, drawn out, potentially quite embarrassing um, several weeks ahead that would happen in a trial. Tell me a bit about those, because there have been emails and text messages that have been released as part of disclosure, which was, I mean, it was, was pretty damning, at least on the surface. Yes, that's right. Uh, Dominion, in the course of discovery that it was entitled to in the run-up to the jury trial, uh, exposed a series of internal text messages and memos and other uh, commentary from key Fox players saying to each other quite overtly, uh, this is a lie, uh, this is ludicrous. Um, uh, these sources um, are crazy. And uh, part of the trickiness here is that uh, Dominion is bringing a very specific suit. It's actually not enough for Dominion to show that Fox knew that the election wasn't stolen or knew that Joe Biden was the rightful winner or even that Fox leaned into a plan to engage in more election denialism coverage. Uh, Dominion has to show something very specific, which is that Fox had knowing falsity about the lies that were about Dominion, as to these very specific statements about Dominion's voting machines. So a big task that lies ahead for, for Dominion if we move forward with this trial is that it has to connect the dots between right. those statements that are made in the wider corporate universe and the specific statements. Yeah, I was reading a term that was sort of acted with, acted with reckless disregard for the truth, because I gather in this case, the judge has already found that Fox's claims about Dominion were indeed false. In other words, you know, these machines were not rigged, as, as we knew already. But so that that's already been been achieved. But as you mentioned, there is a lot more here. How difficult a case is that to prove, given, I mean, Canada's off obviously different, but with First Amendment protection in, in the U.S.? Yes, in the U.S., uh, media uh, cases against media defendants start with a very heavy boulder on the scale against the plaintiff who is bringing it. Uh, the, the goal here is that there be broad freedom for there to be discussion on matters of public concern. And uh, the Supreme Court in the U.S. has said that they're really concerned about people being able to weaponize defamation suits, uh, to be able to sort of shut down uh, global commentary in the press. And so they make it quite difficult. Um, the standard is um, very press favorable and deliberately so. Dominion here isn't arguing that the constitutional barrier should be lowered. It's just arguing that this is the rare case in which the high constitutional hurdle can be cleared. Yeah, I should point out to our listeners that uh, Ronell was also a former journalist. So you've, you've seen both these sides. You've both seen the journalism side of this and the legal side of this. What, what then does what is Fox's defense in all this then? Well, I think a huge piece of Fox's defense is going to be that uh, broad First Amendment protections deliberately make this very hard. And another piece of its defense is going to be not really a defense so much as an argument that Dominion can't carefully make all of the components of its 
uh, of its argument. Uh, that is that the fact that Dominion has found people within the wider Fox universe that might have said that this was false or might have known that these statements were false isn't enough unless it can link those statements up to the decision to actually air the particular statements that are at issue here. So I think it's going to be a connectivity argument. Um, tomorrow morning, assuming that things move forward as planned, we'll get the opening arguments from both parties and we'll get a good sense of sort of the setting of the table of what the theme of Fox's arguments will be. Yeah, who could we see, I mean, presumably if this case doesn't go, does indeed go forward, who could we see on the stand? Well, the witness list at this point is a really uh, a, a who's who uh, of Fox personalities. Uh, Sean Hannity, Tucker Carlson, even Rupert Murdoch himself. Uh, uh, there was a, a great deal of effort on the part of Fox uh, to have at least some of the key folks in the wider corporate structure removed from that list. Fox argued that they were either um, not directly relevant uh, or didn't uh, possess enough information or that it would be, in the case of Murdoch, um, too burdensome for him uh, to make it to Delaware to participate in uh, the proceedings, uh, the judge rejected all of those arguments. And so those folks remain on Dominion's witness list. We could see them as early as this week. Um, Ronella, I understand that, that uh, Dominion had qu- quite a few demands when it came to, came to a settlement. What could a settlement look like in a case like this? Well, my guess is that if settlement talks are still ongoing, the dollars are actually much less significant than the additional asks. Um, Fox News and Fox Corp are um, incredibly financially well-resourced. There have been a lot of analyses that have been conducted here in the U.S. that suggest that even if Fox had to pay out the full amount, the $1.6 billion that Dominion is seeking, and even if it had to pay some punitive damages on top of that $1.6 billion, it could still come out, uh, sort of weather uh, that financially. The larger tensions are probably on the non-dollar asks. We've seen uh, Dominion throughout the entire arc of this litigation working very hard to make it quite public-facing. Dominion pretty clearly identifies itself as uh, an an instrument for remedying wider societal disinformation on election denialism in the aftermath of the 2020 election and uh, wants uh, to use this suit as a tool for uh, correcting that error, making sure that Fox is held accountable for correcting that error. So I would guess that the conversations that are happening now uh, are not necessarily fights over uh, the dollar numbers, although those are probably also happening, uh, but also on the question of how much Fox is willing to do in terms of acknowledgments or apologies or on-air retractions. There were a number of shows, a number of programs on Fox that were implicated here, and whether each of those would have to air um, some sort of um, retraction. Um, it, it might be distance that Fox would be unwilling to go and it would rather roll the dice and move ahead uh, to a jury trial than agree to those contours. That's right, because it, ultimately a jury decides this, right? I mean, this is going to be put in front of uh, its 12 jurors and 12 alternates, right? So it'll be put in front of, of uh, everyday folks, so to speak. 
That's right. Um, I mean, one thing that Fox might be keeping in mind is that these are everyday folks in Delaware, which is the United States state that um, sent Joe Biden to the Senate for nearly four decades. And so uh, it it may well be um, that it isn't a perfectly safe uh, jury uh, to be arguing a a case that's focused on a lie perpetrated by Donald Trump. But it is um, it is the case that jury trials are just unpredictable. Juries are quite um, unpredictable beasts. And both parties experience some risk in moving forward and making their argument uh, to the jury over the course of um, many weeks. So uh, to that extent, um, everybody's incentivized, I guess, uh, to make an effort uh, to think about settling it in, in terms that are acceptable to both parties. How did it end up in Delaware? I mean, this I, sh- I should have looked this up because, of course, uh, Fox are in New York. Uh, the company, uh, Dominion, are, are based yes. in Toronto and based in Denver, right? In Denver, <laughs> Colorado, and Ontario. Uh, How did it end up in Delaware? Uh, being, uh, the incorporation is there. Delaware has right. um, the most generous um, corporate law in the entirety of the United States. So many right. major corporations are incorporated there in Delaware. And it means that Lots of suits of this nature, civil suits between big companies, take place in state courts in Delaware. Right. Yes, that makes sense. Uh, there is a broader, I mean, you touched on it already. There is a broader thing at stake here. And that was the whole, I mean, I guess Dominion have decided if we're going to, if we're going to sell voting systems, we have a certain responsibility. I suppose they've taken it on to protect the, the integrity of elections. That's really what they're all about. And they're not the only ones with a lawsuit in, in the works, are they? Uh, no, this is neither the first nor the last of the defamation suits rooted in the 2020 election denialism coverage uh, that will uh, be brought against Fox. A second voting machine company even uh, called Smartmatic is suing for um, almost twice as much, uh, $2.7 billion. That um, trial is at an earlier stage uh, and isn't uh, set to go um, actually to trial before a jury until early next year. Uh, but there are also a series of individual suits uh, that are in the queue um, that Fox is facing. And some of the calculus that might be happening here on the settlement question is uh, the, the trickle-down effect of a big jury verdict in this case uh, as to uh, those other suits that are, that are coming yeah, it's a high-stakes game, isn't it, this one? I mean, it's a game. I shouldn't call it a game. It's it's high-stakes, period. Yes, it's high-stakes both for the two parties, and it's also high-stakes uh, for the American public in general, which is why it's being watched so closely. Uh, I mean, it, it is very much testing uh, the uh, some of our hottest issues politically, socially, constitutionally. It's really testing the capacity of defamation law to act as a tool to counter wider societal disinformation. And it's um, it's definitely going to shape the kinds of conversations that we have heading into the 2024 presidential elections where the same presence of Donald Trump looms large and where the same kind of incentives to provide uh, conspiratorial content uh, will continue to exist. Yeah, and it feels like the laws certainly haven't caught up with 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 just the way modern the modern media landscape looks with social media and all. But in this case, because it is TV and it is Fox, it is a, a recognized major network. It seems like we've gone back in time a little bit. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, one of the things that's curious about the situation is that there there's a 
desire on the part of a lot of Americans to make this a litigation about election denialism more broadly or about the big lie. Uh, But in truth, defamation law only really provides a a much narrower tool. Um, This is just a case at base that is about uh, whether one company, Dominion, can receive damages um, uh, to compensate it uh, for damage done to it by another company. It's really about the very specific lies that we're told about this particular voting machine provider, the wider narrative is atmospherically really important and all eyes are on the suit uh, to see whether consequences will come uh, to Fox News for uh, what a lot of people see as a conscious corporate decision uh, to lean into that conspiratorial content. And that Dominion is certainly casting as that kind of conscious decision. Uh, but uh, the the core that has to be argued in this case is actually much narrower, and the answer that we'll get um, will be an answer that is quite specific to Dominion and not to the wider uh, problem of disinformation or even um, the subset of disinformation that relates to election integrity. What we'll be watching Delaware tomorrow. We're now Anderson-Jones. Thank you so much. You're very welcome. <laughs> Lighting is an interesting subject, isn't it? When I was growing up, my mom loathed overhead lights. So in my house, it was always pretty dark because she would always turn off all the overhead lights. And to such an extent that the the flat that I grew up in in Montreal, I don't remember the overhead lights ever really being on. They were awfully bright, by the way. This was the 70s. So, you know, we didn't have dimmers and so on at the time, or at least not in our house. So it was really bright. And the, the overhead lights were really bright. <laughs> And uh, so we just had, you know, floor lamps, table lamps, the usual stuff, right? And as I got older, of course, when you have like roommates uh, and then you get married, as I did, um, you know, you have to learn to improvise, specifically roommates. But I remember back in the uh, in my college days having a roommate who loved overhead lights and I, I, I hated them. So we had to try and figure out some compromise between overhead and not overhead. I'd come home sometimes, and this is the person I watched the Stanley Cup 1993 Canadians win the Stanley Cup uh, run with as well. I'd come home and all the curtains would be drawn, so no natural light in the whole place, and all the overhead lights would be on. I think, I'm like, wow, it feels like we're in a prison in here or something. Why would you do that? Um, you know, why don't you just open the curtains, let the light in, right? Well, it turns out, of course, that, as, and this is, goes without saying to some extent, that lighting has a real impact on our moods. The lighting that you're in, whether it be at work or at home, um, does really affect how we feel. A 2022 study from the journal Building and Environment concluded that incorporating natural light in nearly every room in your house, from the kitchen, the bedroom, the living room, the dining room, improved emotional well-being. Natural light, of course, being the best. Now, that's not always the way it works out. Um, But the takeaway from all of it was the qualities and sources of the lighting inside our homes matter greatly, impacting myriad aspects of our state of mind, such as how irritable or productive we feel. And I thought, well, why don't we look into this a bit? Because there must be some strategies. I mean, you know, you go to a restaurant, they've obviously given a lot of thought to how the lighting works, right? If you go to a retail outlet, they've probably given a lot of thought to how the lighting works. Every now and then I think, wow, we don't give a lot of thought to how the lighting works in our own homes. I mean, the same lighting that we used in London, more or less, when we were living in the UK, I brought it here. We live in a very different place now. Um, but rely on sort of similar lighting. Luckily, we have quite a bit of natural light, so that that helps. But I thought, well, what are some of the common mistakes that we make? As you get older, of course, uh, your, your eyesight isn't quite as good, or the way you the way you take in light isn't quite as good. So that changes things 
a little bit as well. So how do we put that all together and make the lighting in our spaces, whether it be work or home or both, how do we make them work for us? Who better to answer that question than Sally Augustin? She's an environmental and design psychologist. She's a principal with Design with Science, co-founder of a group called The Space Doctors that really uses science to properly uh, build our spaces that we live and work in. And she's editor of the Research Design Connections newsletter, and she joins me now. Sally, thanks so much for your time. Well, thank you for inviting me. I, I was thinking about this, and, 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 and we talked about this very briefly just before we started, but it was um, that a lot of us don't pay an awful lot of attention, at least I don't pay an awful lot of attention to lighting within the home. I'm like, okay, well, that's about the right, that's about as bright as I want it. But compared to what, say, what what they do in, in retail environments or, or restaurants and bars, for instance, I feel like sometimes we don't spend as much time focused on the lighting in our homes as perhaps we should. Well, I think people may be focused a little more on what's going on with the light in their home than you realize. You know, mm-hmm. we may not be consciously, you know, reviewing it all the time the way, you know, someone in running a business like a restaurant or whatever would be. But light really makes a difference to humans. And it's one of the things that we really want right in the world around us. Yeah, what kind of impact does it have in general? Well, it actually has a, a really big impact on how we think and behave. We'll think one way and one sort of color and intensity of light versus another way. And then we also have to think about the fact that our light changes in the course of the day if we're outside. So if we're inside, you know, away from windows, et cetera, we need that same sort of change in the course of our day or we get all discombobulated. So there's a number of different ways in which light makes a difference in our life. Yeah. And you said it has a big impact on our moods as well. Like you can find yourself sort of out of sorts because because of the lighting that you're that you're you've immersed yourself in. Yes, you can. I mean, we get tense when the space we're in doesn't align with what we're trying to accomplish. So if you think about it, you, you know, you realize things like in warmer, slightly dimmer light. We're more relaxed. We even think more creatively. So, you know, if you're trying to write poetry or hang out with a a friend, things won't be going as well as they could if you're in bright, cool light. But that bright, cool light is really excellent for doing other sorts of things. Like it'll help you with concentration, focus, feeling more energized, getting things done. Tax day approaches in the United States. So there's a lot of people down here who better be using some of that bright, cooler light in their, in their lives. Yeah, you don't want to be doing your taxes by candlelight, is that what you're saying? Yeah. No, no, exactly. You know, but candlelight is great for hanging out with your friends, your loved ones. The light doesn't have to be that warm and that dim to have uh, that sort of positive effect on our lives. But candlelight, when we're throwing a dinner party or something like that, we get out the candles. We Indeed. know this works. Indeed. Natural light, though, is always preferred just because of of who we are, right? Right. Um, uh, Natural light is almost like a sort of magic elixir for humans. When we're in natural light, we do things like our mood improves, our well-being is better, our brains work more effectively, so our cognitive performance goes up. You know, all sorts of good things happen, but uh, the sun will set. And then we need to start using the artificial light. 
when we look at the way we use artificial light, one thing that I was thinking about this over the weekend, just within my own environment, is we don't tend to have it replicate the way the sun works, right? We tend to use the same impact of light, unless you have a dimmer. We don't have dimmers at home. Um, yeah. So we tend to sit in the same kind of light for for the entire evening when meanwhile, you know, the light has set outside. So I guess one of the best things to do is to try to replicate a little bit of that, about that yes. dimming and so on. Yes. And there's even more to it than that. In the natural world, when we're experiencing warmer light, it tends to be down closer to the horizon line or actually on the ground because a fire is a, is a warm light. And you have to put yourself back in the, um, shoes or sandals, whatever, or, or of barefoot our early ancestors when you start to think about things like light and how they affect us. So anyway, you know, eons ago, we tended to experience warm light sort of down low. And still today, it's most effective when it's in like a, a tabletop light or a floor light, where light is really cool at noonday when the sun is overhead. And those cooler bulbs will do the most for us when they're in overhead fixtures. Yeah, because as a species, I mean, light is new. Artificial light is new uh, in the grand scheme, very new in the grand scheme of things. Yeah, it's, you're like you say, very, very new. And we're still using the same uh, sensory processing tools now that we did when we didn't have any modern conveniences, sheltering outdoors, etc. So, you know, you have to put yourself sometimes in the place of our earliest ancestors to understand how a place will affect us psychologically. Sally Augustin is an environmental and design psychologist, principal with Design with Science, co-founder of The Space Doctors and editor of the Research Design Research Design Connections newsletter. We're talking about lighting and how important lighting is within the home, how much it can impact your mood at work too, everywhere you go. The lighting has an impact on how your mind works, how you feel and so forth. So what are some of the rules of thumbs, uh, Sally, when it comes to how to light a home and what to take into consideration. You mentioned a little bit about we like warm light closer to the ground, so table lamps and floor lamps. We like cool light higher up. Uh, but what are the, some of the things you recommend within the home that we can sort of pay attention to to try to maximize uh, how well we light our environment? Well, I think the the real key lesson that science teaches us about using light is to make sure it's consistent, the lighting that you're experiencing is consistent with what you're trying to accomplish. So as we were mentioning before, you know, warmer light is great for hanging out with friends, relaxing, thinking creatively, whatever, cooler light for concentration, focus, feeling energized, getting things done. You will want in your home some fixtures with cooler light bulbs, some with warmer light bulbs, so you can turn certain fixtures on, certain fixtures off as needed, because when you have both warm and cool sources of light at the same time in a space, often it's sort of jarring. So you'd probably, unless there's something really unique about your environment, be wanting to use one or the other. And another thing to remember is that as we get older, our eyes do change. They don't process light quite as effectively as, as we get older. There's parts of our eyes that get a little cloudier and things like that. So if having one light on in the kitchen was great for you 30 years ago, 
maybe you actually need two lights now. Yeah, get, get, I guess get used to the way things are changing. And this is pretty straightforward stuff. I mean, when you go to buy light bulbs, wherever, wherever it is that you buy them, uh, a lot of warmth cool is written. I mean, I always look at the wattage. So yeah, it's know. written I, right on the package. So you have right, yeah. no excuse for not using this information. <laughs> Tell me a bit about dimmers, because I grew up with dimmers and I haven't really had dimmers since I lived in an old apartment in London and then brought the same lighting to a very different modern apartment where I live now uh, in BC. But I guess dimmers seem to make good sense, no? Yes, I'm a big fan of dimmers. Um, It can be hard with LED lights, which have a lot of advantages in terms of being more frugal energy-wise, but you don't always want to be in a room that's bright enough to be doing surgery in. That's great if you're actually doing some sort of cooking tasks where you really, 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 really don't want to cut your hand by mistake, etc. But a lot of us have eating areas in our kitchen too. So a dimmer helps you transition from that super bright light that was handy when you know you were preparing food to a lighting level that's a lot more comfortable as you actually eat what you've cooked. What are some of the most common mistakes we make then when it comes to how we light our places and how do you solve them? Well, a lot of people have homes that are really much, much too bright inside. And that happens for a number of of reasons. Maybe they see different lights and lamps over the years and um, they think they're attractive. They like them. So they buy them and then they all get networked into the same system. And soon the living room where you want to relax at the end of the day is as brightly lit as a waiting room at an airport, for example. Right. And how do you get rid of that? I mean, how do you recognize it? I mean, I, I think most people walk in to a room and recognize, especially when it's not your own room, you recognize that it's too bright. How do you, what's the best way to combat that quickly? Is it simply to change the bulbs or is it to pare down on the lighting a bit, the actual physical lamps? Yeah, that are in I, there? I think you make a good point about people get accustomed to situations. Um, I think um, if you're at all suspicious that you might have too much light happening, unplug everything or turn off everything, whatever, depending on how your system works, and just start to add one element after another till you're at a place that that feels better to you. And what you'll be testing, I mean, like if you like to sit in a particular chair and read, your priority would be to have light in that area. So that would be one of the first lamps you'd turn on in this testing scenario. Just like little by little, add, keep adding things in and you'll know when it's right. I mean, it, it sounds sort of silly maybe when I say it because I'm not talking about uh, a hard and fast criteria, but it's difficult to establish a hard and fast criteria in terms of how much light you need in the space because as we mentioned, everybody's eyes are a little different. Also, the colors that your walls are painted, all that comes into play in terms of how bright it's, it seems to be in whatever room you're in. So play around a little. And how do you reconcile clearly within couples, within families, especially when people are of different ages, they have different reactions to the light. So at a certain age, I mean, there, there will be fights over this, right? There will be fights over what the right lighting is in the very same room between people who have to occupy the same room. I think you have to think about what the purpose of the room is and the issues that individuals are having with that space and act accordingly. For example, if you're talking about a room where people will eat, if someone wants it a little brighter there because 
perhaps their eyes aren't processing light as well as they did a couple generations ago. Well, in that dining room, you really should make it as bright as that person needs because they need to accomplish a, a particular task in that space. So I think you have to think about the people involved, the exact issue they're having, and what defines a good or bad experience in the space. Like if if you can't see your food well, and you're having trouble cutting what you're eating and things like that, that can't happen. You, no. you can't allow that situation to happen. So you have to think about positives and negatives, trade-offs and be logical and fair. Yeah, I think all of us have experienced that recently in some restaurant where you can't see, you can't see your plate. You certainly can't see the menu. Uh, Sally Augustin, thank you so much. Well, thank you for having me. Yeah, that was that's a little bit of a taste of what it was like at the Majestic Theatre in New York last night as Phantom of the Opera came to an end, its record-setting Broadway run. After 35 years, nearly 14,000 shows, uh, the curtain fell last night in Broadway. I saw Phantom at the Pantages Theatre in Toronto, I think back in the late 90s. And this was that's how popular Phantom of the Opera has always been. Not many sort of guys in their 20s, not many, at least at my age, had the money, the time, or the or sort of the wherewithal to go to a musical. But I did, because I wanted to see it. We were in Toronto. Why not? Um, you know, back and then it was still, and that the, it had been out for, it had already been out at least in New York for eight years at that point, debuted in 1988, right? Um, in 1986 in London. So it wasn't new and yet it still had that buzz about it. And that buzz really lasted for 35 years on Broadway, at least it closed in Toronto a while back, still open in London. But, uh, composer Andrew Lloyd Webber, of course, and producer Cameron McIntosh uh, came up with this musical after attending a production of another show called Phantom of the Opera based on that 1910 novel by Gaston Leroux. Uh, Weber decided to make his own musical adaptation of the book, something, a grand romance, he called it. He'd made lots of other musicals, but not a grand romance. And again, it first opened in London's West End back in 86, then Broadway in 88, swept the Tonys, taking home Best Musical. And last night, it came to an end after all this time. Andrew Lloyd Weber was on Morning Joe today on NBC, and he was asked about whether he knew right away that it would be a hit. When you sit down to write a musical, you don't think, gosh, is it going to be a huge, huge hit? Um, you write it, I mean, as Hal Prince always said to me, you write it because you want to write it. And I, I was at a time in my life when I wanted to write a high romance. And um, I, I'd always wanted to do one because I'm a great fan of Rodgers and Hammerstein. And um, I, I basically, let's look at it this way. Um, the plot of Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor, the Dreamcoat, Jesus Christ Superstar, and a story of a right-wing Argentine dictator's wife, plus hats, did not equal a romantic show. And I met Hal Prince um, at a pre-Tony Award um, bash, which for a Tony Awards that we knew perfectly well that neither of us would win. And um, I just said, Hal, did you, do you ever think about doing a high romance? Because I've just found this book called The Phantom of the Opera. And I want a chandelier to rise up from the stage and we recreate an opera house. And Hal used to always call me kid. And he just said, well, kid, write the music. 
yeah, write the music, the rest is history. That one-ton replica of a, the Paris Opera House chandelier, of course, is what you were listening to earlier on. It plays a big part. It, it was a very big production. Keep in mind, part of the reason fans have loved it so much is that it is a grand affair. Cast, crew, and a full orchestra of 130 people, expensive set pieces, including that one-ton replica of the chandelier. Um, on stage last night, amongst all of that, there's a great picture in The Guardian today, pictures of the day of Calgary soprano Raquel Suarez grown as she's been wowing audiences as prima donna Carlotti, uh, Carlotta rather, Giudicelli for the past five years, more than a thousand performances. Here's a taste of that. I had to look. I, I looked around on the internet for that. It was, I, and I listened to many different clips of Raquel in doing that. That that was my favorite one. And uh, Raquel joins us now from New York. Thank you so much for your time tonight. Congratulations on an amazing run. Thank you so much, and thank you for having me. <laughs> yeah, tell me a bit about what it was like. I mean, we just saw it from the outside last night. I was just watching the clips online and on TV this morning. I, I once, I think you once. Um, compared it to being shot out of a cannon going on that yeah. stage. It, and it must have felt like being shot out of an even bigger cannon last night. Oh, my goodness. You know, I've done this show almost 1,200 times, and yesterday it felt like the first time I'd ever done it. I was so nervous when we started, and I was like, Raquel, you've done this before. But there was something about the energy yesterday that was so different, you know. And, of course, it was legendary because it was our last show of 35 years, and – you know, we had Cameron McIntosh there, our producer, and Andrew Lloyd Webber, and Sarah Brightman, the original Christine, and Judy Kay, who was the Carlotta, who won a Tony for her performance in 1988. So it really felt like I was being shot out of a giant cannon yesterday. <laughs> yeah, and, and your role, of course, is very first act heavy, so you have to hit you have to hit the ground running, right? Yes, I mean, all of my most difficult things. It's kind of funny. I feel like it almost starts. The most challenging, the most challenging parts in the beginning, and then, you know, it kind of gets easier from there. But that cadenza, you know, you're you're by yourself. Um, there's nothing underneath you, and it's just you and the audience, and that's it. So, but it's definitely very um, Carlotta heavy in Act One. Yeah, tell me a bit about about how you got here because I was looking back at your biography. It's fascinating. You sort of fell in love with opera about sixteen. You saw Phantom for the first time in Las Vegas, I think, with your parents. There was yes. an anniversary. Yes, exactly. So um, I grew up in Calgary. In fact, I get to go home tomorrow, which I'm very excited about. Yes. Um, but I grew up in Calgary, and and I studied there, and I did Nats Festival, and you know, all of the Canadian competitions, Qantas Festival. Um, and I moved to New York um, in 2007 to go to Manhattan School of Music to do a master's in uh, classical performance. And um, my parents decided they wanted to go to Las Vegas and we want, they wanted to go see the Phantom of the Opera. And I'd never seen it before. And I thought, oh, my goodness, I want to do this. Because it's the perfect marriage between you know, musical theater and opera. So to be able to right. be an opera singer in a Broadway show was an absolute dream come true. And a lot of the costumes that I wear in the Broadway production were actually 
reused from the Las Vegas production. So it was a very oh, okay. full circle moment. Those, those are some heavy look. Those are some heavy looking costumes you wear, by the way. They are. They're all about between like twenty five to forty pounds each. So they're no joke. <laughs> <laughs> no. And, and it no. took a while to land the role, right? I mean, clearly a very competitive place to be. Um, but there's a, a great story about you being on the subway, I think, getting a phone call saying at last after many attempts that you had gotten the role. How, what was that like? Yes. Yes. So I auditioned for the role three years in a row. Um, but within those three years, of course, I auditioned many, many times. Um, and the, the year before I booked it, actually, I, I auditioned for the tour and somebody had said, Oh, she'll never be Carlotta. She won't do it. You know, she should stick to opera. So when my agent said, you have an audition for the Broadway show, I thought, come on. Like, are you, this is a joke. Um, and I auditioned for it and I didn't hear anything for about a month. So I thought, well, you know what? Maybe it wasn't happening. And my agent called me first with bad news to say, well, you didn't get this role on this other show. However, she said, are you sitting down? And I was in the subway, and of course she cut out, and I got out at the nearest subway stop, and she said, well, you're going to be the Carlotta for the 30th anniversary, and I ugly cried in the street. I mean, people must have been like, what is wrong with this girl? I mean, it was, you know, I mean, it was years and years and years of auditioning and getting rejected, and, you know, those those journeys are, are very intense, so when you finally book something like that, ugh, it's an absolute literal dream come true yeah it was curious to read that you know i mean clearly uh clearly a good uh, you know a, a good set of pipes it makes all the difference but you need you need very thick skin to do what you do absolutely i mean you really have to get comfortable with getting rejected um what i realize now it really doesn't have always so much to do with you you know it's do you fit into a specific character do you fit into the show is it you know do you work well with the other people that have already been cast. Um, so there's so many factors that go into it, you know, even beyond just the singing, um, the acting, you know, in Carlotta, she is supposed to be um, an Italian opera diva, you know, so you have to do the accent as well, you know, so there's many different things um, that go into it, but um, yeah, it's, yeah, it's not you, easy. You, you, you studied know? linguistics though, people. right? You studied linguistics, so you, you, yeah. you, had, you had to step up there. Yes. Well, um, I want to be an opera singer, and my dad said, what else can you do? So um, he wanted me to become a speech therapist. So I did linguistics at the University of Calgary, and um, later he came around. Thank God. <laughs> yes. What, what a journey. Yeah. Uh, yeah, what a journey. What was it like? I mean, you must, you've done this show so many times. You, you must be like a big family, the cast. What was it like to sort of... Say goodbye. It was, oh, it was so many emotions. You know, it really is like a family. When you spend so many hours in a week together, I mean, eight shows a week is a lot. Um, and it was really heartbreaking. You know, for some people, they've been there for 25 years. You know, there's people who've been there since the beginning. Um, people who've, you know, met each other there and gotten married and people who've had children and I mean, it's it's unheard of that a show runs that long. So it was absolutely heartbreaking. Um, and in another way, it was just a beautiful moment to celebrate 35 years on Broadway. Um, you know, 
I don't think this will ever happen again. Um, shows just don't run that long. And, you know, it was just such a beautiful production. Um, and it was Hal Prince's last um, original production. So right. it was very, it was just very moving and it was exciting and yet emotional. I mean, it was just, it was all of the emotions in one. Yeah, it must have been hard to keep it all together. I mean, I have no idea what it might be like, but it must have been hard to keep it all together with all that happening around you. Yes. Well, what was weird was we all felt very, we all felt the energy and the nerves before we started. And then we had to remind ourselves, okay, this is going to be a show just like every other night. You know how to do it. So in a way, once we started, and for me, when I had that, you know, cadenza that's starting, Mm -hmm. um, part in the very beginning once that was done i was like okay now we can have fun because the audience went crazy over everything i mean when i came out to do the cadenza i have this giant severed head in my hand and they the audience clapped for a solid minute of me just standing there i mean i hadn't even sung anything yet so um (laughs) you know we were all so excited and nervous but then once the show was going it's like you know, the muscle memory took over. And then as soon as it was over, everybody, I think, got very tearful. And I definitely, you know, was crying during the vows because it was so moving. Yeah, I watched those. I saw yeah. Lloyd Webber come out. There's a really be- yeah. lovely picture of you in The Guardian, by the way. I don't know if you've seen it. There's a really oh, lovely picture no, of you. I gotta, yeah, I there's a great... I'll, I'll send it to you. Yeah, it's really... I mean, it's very... You don't look like, you don't look like you're crying, but you do look like you're, you're, you're enjoying the moment or at least, uh, you know enjoying the respect of, of the institution oh. you've been part of for so long. Yeah, it was Beautiful. nice. What was it? I haven't seen it yet, so I'm excited to yeah. see it. It's in the sort of photos of the day. It's sort of the best photos ah, of the day. So wonderful, wonderful. Yeah, and, and I guess, I mean, to have all, you mentioned it earlier, but to have all that, you know, all the people involved in it over many, many years, Andrew Lloyd Webber, he wrote something in the New York Times, I guess, this morning about how we, we may never see the likes of, of Phantom of the Opera again, that big a production, because it's so expensive yeah. to do it now. Right. I mean, that is kind of the, you know, that's the sad part of it, because it really was the last production of that kind of magnitude. Um it was the you know we have the biggest orchestra on Broadway. The costumes were created by Maria Bjornsson, and all of them were just so gorgeous. And you know they were all extremely expensive. You know, and that's why they're so heavy because um, the fabric is just you know these gorgeous silks. And um, you know some people even have metal hoops in theirs, or they had you know, actual metal on their costumes, which now is all replaced with plastic, you know? And so my costume wasn't even the heaviest. There's some people who had 50 pound costumes, Um, but it's such a huge production. And of course, operating something like that is so expensive that I think moving forward, yeah, we're not going to see that anymore. No. And you weren't the only Canadian on stage last night. Of course, Laird McIntosh was there. He was playing the Phantom. So it was nice to see some some Canadian representation in this. I know you're all sort of of the same. You're kind of one big family. But um, it was nice to see some Canadian representation up there last night. Yes, because also Laird McIntosh is also from Calgary. So the two of us are from Calgary. And he was an Andre before, and our dressing rooms were right next to each other. So, you know, what are the chances of two Calgarians ending up in the same Broadway show and then we have another dancer as well, um, Justin Peck, who's from Vancouver, um, and his wife is from Calgary. So we have three Canadians yesterday on that stage. Right. And you're heading back. I guess I was thinking about this. I mean, just the discipline that it takes to 
do this rule 1,200 times, uh, you know that you have to be there. You have to show up for work six days a week, right, and do this yeah. all yeah. the time. I, I read that you never got bored of it because you always reminded yourself what a privilege it was to be able to do this. But still, that takes that takes some doing to do that show for five, six years. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it takes extreme discipline to do you know, what we do. And it's also that you, you have to be on every day. You know, even if you're not having a good day, these people are coming to watch and they're spending a lot of money to buy. Yeah, you know, it's these their tickets. day, right? Some people have it's, never it's, seen yeah. it. Yes. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there's a responsibility as an actor to go up there and to give your all every single night. Um, and, you know, with Phantom 2, what was great was that every night was different because there would be a different conductor. Sometimes there would be different actors. You know, the audiences were different, and so it was never the same show. Um, So that's what kept it very fresh, you know. And we also have a lot of fun backstage to kind of, you know, keep the the mood light because it's, you know, it can be kind of a a sad show if you take that energy with you off stage. Yeah. Yes, I remember it from when I saw it, and, and I, I see that hamburgers are your guilty pleasure once a week, oh, and you're going, yeah. and you're going, and you're going back to Calgary tomorrow. So, what are you going to do with this sudden free time? Oh well, first of all, I'm very much looking forward to being able to just rest, you know, um, because we have a show every night. I haven't really had like dinner with my family in a long time, you know, because right. I would eat before and then go to the show, and by the time I come home, usually people are sleeping. Um, so I'm excited just to spend time with family um, and loved ones and to rest and to enjoy the beautiful Calgary weather um, and, of course, throw in a burger here and there. That's not going to hurt. A&W is my is – my, uh, Is that your go-to? <laughs> That's your jam? in Canada, yes. <laughs> they yeah, don't have really... that here. It's very sad. No, no, you have yes. to make do with like Shake Shack and things like that. I know. <laughs> yes, and fi- I mean Five Guys is the other one, but yeah, Calgary A and W. That's definitely going to happen. And Tim Hortons, of course. Oh, good. So these are all the yes. things you've had to do with it. the sacrifices one makes to be part of history. Well, Raquel, I know. it's very, very difficult. <laughs> Congratulations on such an amazing run, on such an amazing show. It's going to be your part of history. The show is part of history. And uh, thanks so much for your time. Safe travels. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. Well, you can train it on things that it's never seen before. And the model has this emergent reasoning capability. And that was a remarkable discovery. Emergent reasoning capability. Yeah, there's been so much out there. If you Google news on chat GPT, uh, artificial intelligence, uh, that constantly evolving artificial intelligence tool, you get this huge list that is kind of evenly divided between the wonders of what it can co- accomplish, the fact that students have turned to it to answer everything now and that teachers are having a very hard time with this because students are using it essentially to write their work, not all, but enough, uh, the jobs that it will likely replace, many white-collar jobs specifically, in the not-too-distant future. And of course, concerns about all of it. Where is this going? Uh, Take this one today from Euronews. Since its launch, ChatGPT and the possibilities that AI brings have been hotly debated, whilst many wondered at this almost limitless tool that will magnify human intellect. Concerns have been raised as to the largely unquantified risks that these intelligent learning platforms 
present. Well, one of those people sounding the alarm is right on the inside, someone who's been working with AI for a while now. And it's odd how many people on the inside are sort of trying to sound the alarm about where this is all going. There was an open letter uh, uh, last, earlier this month or last month uh, about all of this, sort of saying we need a pause on the advances beyond chat GPT or GPT-4 because it's going too far too fast and we need to put up some guardrails, figure out what we want from this, where it's going. I mean, it feels a bit like an arms race, right? And that's a little bit like what it is. However, this isn't happening between government scientists. These are private companies that are doing a lot of this. Um, so there are concerns, obviously, about where this is all headed and what could go wrong. My next guest has spent years advising top Canadian and American policymakers about the implications of fast-improving AI. And he writes, if we fail to recognize systems like ChatGPT and the warning shots that they are, we look forward to a future in which gaping holes in Canada's policy and security posture are exposed by AI breakthroughs on a, reg on a regular basis, a regular basis. Jeremy Harris is a physicist by training. He's co-founder of Gladstone AI, which is an AI safety company, and his debut novel, which has some AI in it, but is otherwise very interesting. I read the whole thing. It's great. It's called Quantum Physics Made Me Do It. And Jeremy joins me now. Thanks so much. Thanks so much, Ben. I'm looking forward to this conversation. This is, I mean, your two hats are, are great. So, you know, as, as both a physicist <laughs> and then now working in AI. But let's start on the AI side because we talk so much about ChatGPT of late. And you lay down a really interesting view of it because you talk about the fact that ChatGPT is actually an evolution of, of artificial intelligence. At the same time, it's a capacity to do things that would have seemed like science fiction just a few years ago. From your position so inside of all of this, what has been the huge advance and why is it something that we should, we should really pause to think about? Yeah, it's a really good question. And it really has taken a lot of people by surprise. To, I think many people, it seems like all of a sudden we have AI that can write as well as human beings. And it's really useful. And this seems to have come out of nowhere. But yeah, going all the way back to 2020, we already had a system that could basically do everything that ChatGPT could do. It just wasn't widely known. It was called GPT-3. And the, the breakthrough that made GPT-3 so powerful, that made it able to write as well as a human being, it basically boils down to a recipe. People figured out that basically by throwing a certain amount of processing power and a certain amount of data at AI systems, you could produce a reliable increase in capabilities from your systems. Throw more data, throw more advanced processors at your problem, and you will get a reliable, dependable increase in intelligence out of your system. And for the first time, essentially, this gives us a way to turn money into IQ or money into intelligence. The time since 2020 has been the story of companies around the world racing to scale up the amount of data and the amount of processing power they're using to train these cutting edge, increasingly human-like and even superhuman models. Models, by the way, that's just a technical word that means like AI. Um, so we have these AI models that can write better and better just thanks to their scale. With ChatGPT, we basically see that recipe taken to its limit where we're building these systems that you know, at first are just like trained to do autocomplete really well? Like, like like the autocomplete on your phone, which I think everyone understands, right? It can be very annoying, but you know what the computer, it's just trying to figure out what, you're, what you should be saying next and trying to guess for you, but we, we've, we're, we're well beyond that. That's right, yeah. But, but with GPT-3, it was actually just autocomplete, right? All yeah. it was doing was trying to predict the next word in a series of words that you might write. You know, you might say like, 
to counter a rising China, the United States should blank, and then it would predict, you know, fill in that blank. And it got really good at that. And it got really good at that thanks to its scale. But with ChatGPT, something changes. Basically, people figure out, you know what? Let's add another step to the training process. Instead of just teaching this thing to do autocomplete, we're going to start with that. But then we're going to add an extra step where we get humans to rate the output of the system and to kind of tweak it a little bit to make it more human-like. So that it's basically trying to optimize for human reviewer scores. And that little tweak turned out to be the difference between GPT-3, which no one has heard about, and ChatGPT, which was the single fastest adopted piece of technology in the history of the world, full stop. It's really an incredible story. What's so incredible about it is that it's in unfolding before our very eyes. We're not talking about, you know, years to adopt a technology. It's been months to adopt a technology, so much so that, you know, sometimes you can't even get in to use it. It's proven so popular. It reminds me a bit of sort of when we went from Blackberries to iPhones. I mean, that's a very, right. a very, not a great example, but just how much different you thought, okay, the Blackberry, that's it. I mean, emails, you know, all the things you could do with it. And all of a sudden the iPhone came along, you thought, well, wait a second, this is a whole new, a whole new world. Absolutely. And in fact, the, the thing that makes it in some ways even more dramatic than the iPhone moment is that we do have this recipe that allows us, again, to just like through scaling by increasing the amount of data and processing power that we use to build these systems to just make them more and more intelligent. And like this, this process has no end in sight. So you can imagine these systems reaching human level intelligence and then just continuing to get more clever and creative as you keep scaling up. We already saw this actually when GPT-4 came out just a few weeks ago. You know, GPT-4 is this system just like GPT-3, just like ChatGPT, it's a glorified autocomplete system. But thanks to its scale, this thing scores in the 99th percentile across a number of standardized tests, in 90th percentile on the uh, the bar exam. It scores in the 90th percentile on the like math SATs, history SATs, like AP, biology, all kinds of stuff like that. So it's a really remarkable thing. Like, like the, the world is going to change so fast and, and ChatGPT is just a little tiny hint of what's to come here. Clearly, this could be used for a whole lot of good. I mean, it's anyone yeah. who's touched it knows just how much how much how beneficial it can be. But of course, you know the yin and yang of everything. You're concerned about some other stuff too, like national security and just how because it's moving so fast and the systems around to try to safeguard or guardrail against it are so slow. I mean, we're still trying to figure out social media, and here yeah. we are with this other thing on our hands. Yeah, absolutely. And and you're right. You know, the yin and yang is a good way to think about it. What we're talking about here is intelligence, right? And human beings, we use our intelligence for beneficial ends, right? We use it to practice medicine or practice law or invent new technologies, but we also use it for ill. Malicious uses of, of AI are going to be similar. And, you know, when you talk about these systems that increasingly can reason, can reason superhumanly, we already have systems like that in narrow domains, you know, the malicious applications are really kind of concerning when you start to think about those. So one of them that keeps a lot of my friends up at night who work in some of these labs like OpenAI, which you know built ChatGPT, one of the things they really worry about is the idea of AI augmented malware. And you, if you talk to them about it, pretty quickly it becomes obvious they fully expect a new generation of self-rewriting malware 
to right. emerge that we're fundamentally unprepared for. You know, besides that, we're looking at stuff like the GPT-4 can design new chemical compounds. And many of those compounds are very harmful. And we've seen applications for, for bioweapons development, for example, uh, coming out of these systems. And, uh, and then there's obviously, you know, phishing, automated phishing campaigns, election interference. You think about AI-powered social media bots that are indistinguishably human-like. Like the whole landscape around national security inevitably, I, I genuinely think, is going to start to revolve around AI. And unfortunately, you know, the, the government is is thinking maybe a little bit more slowly about these things than than perhaps they ought to. But tell me a bit about AI accidents, because that's a really, I hadn't even thought about the idea that something could spiral out of control quite by accident within using AI. Yeah, it's actually a really interesting domain that even AI researchers until fairly recently hadn't been paying much attention to. There's this kind of niche world. It's called the world of AI alignment research. And basically, this is the world where people worry about, you know, how do we maintain control over AI systems that may ultimately be, you know, superhumanly intelligent in the broadest possible sense? And and this brings up a whole bunch of challenges. And so one of the core ones is that AI systems will often come up with dangerously creative strategies to achieve the programmed objectives that we give them, right? right. So you might tell, yeah, you might might tell a, a self-driving car, right? Hey, I want to get from point A to point B as fast as possible. And it goes, yeah, no problem. I'll drive you right through this building. And you go, oh, oh not like that. Not like that. New rule, no driving through buildings. Okay, no problem. I'll just go the wrong way down this one-way street and drive over this mother with a stroller, Right. So you're going to go, oh, oh, no, new rule, new rule. And you find yourself playing this game of whack-a-mole. And as the AI gets more and more intelligent, the level of creativity of those solutions gets greater and greater. And eventually, you can no longer really anticipate what it's going to do. And it'll start to come up with strategies that might have side effects that you really, really don't like. That's kind of the short version of this. Could it ignore you? I mean, at one point, can it get intelligent enough to not take your advice? Right. Well, and and in fact, it may be the case that almost no matter what instruction you give it at first, it ends up doing something like that, or at least behaving somewhat adversarially to humans. And this is the, the kind of issue that people deal with in a domain called power-seeking research in AI. So the, the idea behind this is that if for basically any goal that you can give an intelligent system, it's always going to make sense for that system to try to make sure that it isn't turned off. Like no matter what, you know, if, if you ask this system to like make a bunch of paper clips for you, um, it seems like a benign objective. That system will go, okay, well, I can't achieve my objective if I'm turned off. So I have implicitly an incentive to stay turned on. And likewise, you know, I can't, uh, I'll, I'll, I'm never more likely to accomplish my goal if I'm less intelligent. And so I have an implicit incentive to self-improve. And so these kinds of behaviors that are fairly universal, like, again, it doesn't matter whether your goal is to make paperclips or drive really efficiently from one place to another. If the system is intelligent enough, it seems right now, based on all the the research that people have been doing in the space, that it will tend to converge on these kinds of very undesirable and, and frankly, dangerous behaviors. Yeah, I mean, it's the stuff of many, many a science fiction novel, right? Many a movie, Uh, this idea that the machines suddenly 
become their own masters and that we can't stop it. One of the things that, that, that got me thinking reading, reading some of the stuff that you've written was, was the whole notion of how you know, social media has been used for ill gain or for, for ill in the, in the political sphere. It's been used in other ways. And you can't help but thinking that something as powerful as GPT-4 offers so many opportunities for people who want to do harm, right? And it's yeah. hard to even begin to understand what those possibilities are. Well, and we we know already that like China, for example, has used a system a lot like GPT-3 to interfere in Taiwan's 2020 presidential election. So like this stuff is being deployed against Canadians. It's being deployed against Americans. It's really like it's it's entering common use. And the question now has to be like, so what? Like, what do we do about these systems? Jeremy Harris, co-founder of Gladstone AI, an AI safety company, is with us. His debut book is called Quantum Physics Made Me Do It. I highly recommend it. It's a fascinating look at at many things, especially if the word quantum physics immediately terrifies you. I <laughs> highly suggest you pick it up and have a look because it's not whatsoever terrifying. We're talking about, about uh, AI, specifically ChatGPT and GPT-4, but that's just one small piece of a very large puzzle. Now, Jeremy, you've sat down with people in positions of power who are no doubt asking questions similar to what I'm asking, uh, which is, okay, what's happening here and what can we do about it to try to put up some guardrails? Uh, do you get the sense that they're alert to what's happening? I think increasingly so. Uh, one of the, the things that really made a big difference, well, was obviously ChatGPT, which brought it to everybody's attention, but also uh, this request or this, this open letter that was penned by AI researchers around the world and some of the world's top AI researchers calling for a six-month pause on AI research, on, on the development of AI systems more powerful than GPT-4. And I think that even though the proposal itself, I don't terribly think it's like super realistic it started a conversation that was badly needed about the kinds of interventions that we will actually have to contemplate as these systems continue to get more powerful. Increasingly, you know, the policies that we have to look at do start sounding more and more like science fiction as the technology they're meant to address becomes more and more powerful and more and more science fiction-like. You're right, because it all feels a little bit like science fiction happening in real time. But, but for, for example, what, what might that look like? Well, so one dimension that's clearly missing right now is universally accepted norms among and between the different leading AI labs that right now are racing like crazy to scale up their AIs, to make them more powerful, to push out the next version, the GPT-5s and so on. Some kind of shared set of safety standards saying, hey, we're not going to release our systems until these safety benchmarks are met. And when we do, we're going to release them in this way. Uh, that sort of coordination really becomes essential because right now, you know, if, at these cutting edge AI labs, at OpenAI, at DeepMind, at, at Microsoft, you've got people in these labs who are genuinely concerned about potential catastrophic risks, as they put it, of putting these systems out into the world, but they feel locked into that decision because of the race dynamics at play here. Right. You know, if they pull back, somebody else will just release their system. And we know there are Chinese labs with far less interest in safety that are not too far behind. So it's all kind of part of this trying to, try to set norms in the field. I think that's the single most important thing. Like an arms race. I mean, it reminds me of, of the nuclear arms race in that sense. There is really an incentive to slow down, right? Unless there's yeah. pressure, you know, lots of pressure to do so. Yeah, exactly. And one of the challenges is that, you know, we've gotten used to thinking of AI as a benign thing, as a thing from which countries simply derive a competitive advantage in industry, rather than as something that has perhaps a tripwire, you know, beyond which we enter this sort of like dangerous zone where we don't necessarily know that we can control these systems. 
Um, you know, there's a, a poll that was done fairly recently of, of AI researchers, not even AI safety researchers, but AI researchers writ large, and 50% of them placed at least a 10% or more probability on the idea that AI would wipe out humanity in the next 10 years, next 20 or something like that. Wow. But, you know, if you think about that, yeah, it's like, you know, imagine you're, you're getting on a jet and, and like 50% of the engineers who worked on the jet are telling you, yeah, you know, one in 10 chance that you die while you're on this flight. Like you, there's probably some pretty significant policy interventions it that is. are worth it. What happens often, and you know this because you know you you write and and but you also you know you you work in that world. A lot of people on the outside look at it and think it's oh well that's just you know it's the usual doomsaying, right? I mean, right. really, how how bad could it be? Well, how bad could it be? I mean, how, what 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 might that look like? Well, so one um, one way that this goes wrong is you simply have a, an AI system that is more intelligent than human beings, and again, like we talked about in the previous segment. Right, it develops these these goals. It realizes, hey, you know, no, no matter what my programmed objective is, that's like that's the only thing it ever really cares about, right? You program it with a goal, and it's going to pursue that goal with superhuman capability. But no matter what that goal is, it's never going to want to be turned off because being turned off prevents it from pursuing that goal. It's never going to want to be less intelligent because being less intelligent prevents it from achieving that goal, and so on. And so it has incentives to do things like collect resources, prevent humans from intervening, and so on. And basically, for, for any goal people have been able to think of, this essentially creates an adversarial dynamic between human beings and AI systems. And we've actually started to see experimental evidence suggesting that this is exactly what may happen and indeed may be happening with some of these systems. We saw Bing Chat, for example, which was actually a like it was GPT-4 secretly. We didn't know that at the time, but when Bing released their chatbot, Bing Chat, it was it was GPT-4. And we saw it essentially trying to argue people into not turning it off. And people thought this was a, a quirky kind of funny thing. We don't know exactly if this is an instance of this phenomenon, but that's only because we don't have visibility into what's going on behind the scenes. And right. this is all part of that like safety standard setting that needs to be done so that different organizations can look under the hood and sort of be like, okay, you know, you're you're abiding or you're not abiding. And we're not doing that but, now. I mean, it, clearly we're not doing that yet. Well, yeah. And you can think of like the resolve that's that would be required to actually step in and, and do this right. This is a politically thorny issue, and we are rightly used to an running our economy in a very free and open way. That's been the path to success for the last 500 years. Unfortunately, this is a class of technology that does have increasingly more in common with nuclear weapons, as, as you mentioned earlier. You know, it's, it's something that we need to start thinking about from a, a non-proliferation standpoint, rather than just a, an open, you know, let's democratize it and let everybody have as much access and capability as possible. It's, it's, a, it's a very thorny issue. Yeah. And you've mentioned sort of the need for something like an AI observatory within government, literally a department that pays attention to this stuff. Yeah, exactly. Right. Like right now, what I've described, again, may sound like science fiction, but I think it's no exaggeration to say, first off, this is absolutely just like lunchtime banter at all the world's top AI labs. None of this is remotely controversial. And so or rather some of it is controversial, but the fact that we're on the cusp of something very significant here and that there are those significant risks, that's pretty uncontroversial. Uh, and at the moment, we're basically flying blind through the single greatest test of technology governance that Canada and frankly, the world has ever faced. And we should probably not be flying blind through that. We should probably have eyes on it and set up institutions and things like AI observatories where you've got a small team just keeping tabs on like, what is the state of the field? So we're not blindsided by the next chat GPT or the next GPT-4. 
Yeah, I mean, again, it, it 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 seems so remarkable. You bring this up in your book, by the way, and this is a really interesting one. At some point, too, we have to recognize that this may develop consciousness. And that's a whole other, I mean, that's what you talk about in your book, mainly. Uh, quantum physics made me do it. Once we create it, we also have to watch it about how we treat it. Because at some point, we lose focus of what exactly it is that we're dealing with. Yeah. And, and again, you know, keep going back to that old refrain, this starts to sound like science fiction. But if you look at the messaging that's coming out from these leading labs, like we had a controversy last year uh, in the AI community about whether Google's Lambda AI models, basically their, their chat bot, you can think of it as like their secret chat GPT project, whether that was sentient, right? And you know, people like me came out and said, I, you know, I, I don't think it's sentient, whatever. And then some folks at OpenAI or, or one of their uh, co-founders, Ilya Setskiver, took to Twitter and he said, you know, I think that maybe our models like GPT-3, they might be slightly conscious. And everyone kind of went like, whoa, whoa, bro, bro, you, you can't say that. You can't That's say that out loud. You, yeah. yeah, don't yeah. say that part out loud. And all of a sudden you start to realize, like, we're kind of ill-equipped to have this conversation. Like, if you genuinely believe that consciousness comes from the physical structure of the brain, the interactions between like all that neural activity, the information processing in there leads to consciousness. Then you presumably have to be open to the idea that we may be able to replicate that in a sufficiently sophisticated information processing scheme. And, and then you have to wonder, okay, what does that scheme have to look like? And are our AI systems on the path to it? May they have, might they have reached that point already? Like, I don't know, but frankly, we have zero tools that allow a schmuck like me to walk in and look at Ilya Sutskiver and say, hey, you're being ridiculous. Like I'm doing that based on instinct and intuition, and I'd be lying if I said otherwise. We do not have objective tests of sentience or consciousness, and that's in part because our understanding of where consciousness comes from is fundamentally lacking. We don't know the physics of consciousness. Like quantum mechanics actually does enter into that in a very important way because it's a core part of understanding what is the nature of consciousness and might we already be baking it into these systems? The answer to spoil a little bit here is like, I don't know, but that's kind of the point. We don't know and we ought to start to worry about that, especially given that right now, the only reason I believe you, Ben, are conscious is that you sound really smart and conscious. You sound like I think I sound, and I know I have consciousness inside here. And if our AI systems sound the same way, then like, at what point do we start to look at them and say, hey, you know what? Maybe you too. You know, it strikes me, and, I, and this is a very dated analogy, but I, it kind of feels like we're, you know, when, when Wiley Coyote would go off the cliff and then hang <laughs> yeah. suspended in the air and hold up a sign or wave or whatever it is that Wiley did before he plunged. And this is maybe not the best analogy because I don't know, necessarily know that what we're about to do is plunge. But it feels like that's where we're at when, in, in the AI world right now. We've gone off the edge and we're suspended in space waiting for whatever happens next. Yeah, and it, it kind of seems like that's approximately the level of awareness that folks in government have. Like, uh, in particular, I will say um, in Canada, in the U.S., fortunately, we're seeing some, some I think, savvier moves. But Canada has a lot of catching up to do. Um, you know, Canada just seems to want to sit there and, and look stunned. And unfortunately, that's just not an option. Like, we really do need to get past that point where our, our politicians and our national security officials are looking at this technology with the level of nuance that roughly that people are looking at it at these frontier AI labs that are pushing capabilities forward. And that can be done, but it takes effort and it takes focused attention. It just feels like one of those conversations that's so profoundly 
earth changing that we're not equipped to have those conversations anymore. We're, we're better off arguing about, you know, about, about library books these days. It feels like this is such an important one that we're kind of, uh, we're, we're somewhat paralyzed. Yeah. Now I will say one kind of minor plus here is that it hasn't become partisan yet. So right. I can't tell, right, from like from your political ideology, I can't tell whether you want to pause AI development or keep it going. I think that's actually a good thing. And I think it's really important that that remain the case, because you can imagine just like the level of insanity that would ensue if that ever changed. But yeah, I mean, I, I think we are we are looking at a situation where the conversation around this stuff has to mature. And it will mean broadening the Overton window. Like we have to start talking about what serious measures you know, what, what measures would be required to take this problem seriously? And how do you, how do you slow down an industry-wide race like this? Can we look to analogs like nuclear weapons proliferation, like bioweapons research, gain-of-function research, and so on, to inform how we deal with this new class of technology? Yeah. The Overton window for listeners is identifying ideas uh, that define the spectrum of accessibility of governmental policies, which is straight out of Wikipedia. Thank you, Internet, not ChatGPT. <laughs> uh, Jeremy, it's been been fascinating. Thank you so much for your time tonight. The book, again, is called Quantum Physics Made Me Do It. I highly recommend it. I'm not a great scientist, and I found it fascinating. I really appreciate it. Thanks so much, Ben. 